Hey, what is up, Church Online? We are so glad that you are with us wherever you are joining us. And I want to tell you uh, something exciting we're doing is we started inviting uh, some of our team to sit in on our online service because we want you to get as authentic of an experience as possible. So we have some people here in the room that I will be preaching to. Uh, and so I hope that that uh, doesn't throw you off too much. But we are going to start a brand new series that I'm honestly, I'm really, really excited about this weekend. And uh, it's going to be a four-week series. We just got done with a series called The Good Life. And we spent kind of four weeks talking about things that we want to see come out of our lives, things like love and joy, peace. Uh, and this series is actually going to highlight something that, that I believe and the Bible teaches is essential, and I would even say necessary, to experience any or all of those things. So if you've been with us the last four weeks in this good life, and it's like, I want that, I, I think that what we're going to do these next few, four weeks is going to help you implement and see more of that stuff come out of your life. And, and this thing that we're going to talk about, we're calling the secret ingredient, because it's kind of the secret ingredient behind the scenes of all of those fruits of the Spirit we talked about in Galatians chapter 5. So that's what we're going to talk about. But we're going to talk about a secret ingredient that honestly doesn't get talked about that often. It doesn't get preached about that much. It's definitely not emphasized. Yet I believe many of us, most of us agree that it's important. Um, it's probably necessary for growth. It's definitely an attractive quality um, that is required for us to become who God wants us to be and also is required for the church, the group of people that are followers of Jesus, to be the light that we're meant to be in this world. But we may not necessarily be pursuing or inviting this secret ingredient. And I'll tell you this right now, that nothing in our culture or our society is going to be promoting this or endorsing it. It's attractive, but nobody's saying you should want it, and here's how to have it. And so we're going to take the next few weeks talking about one of the most, in my opinion, pivotal, necessary, most underappreciated, most underrated, underdeveloped attributes. But to best illustrate this, I want to have a little bit of fun. And so I, I have a couple of volunteers who are going to help me. So you got ladies, come on up here. Um, we have Roselle and Kitty. Shout out to Roselle and Kitty on your, your, your uh, keyboards. Um, what's up? So here's, I don't know if you know this about me, and you may, if you've been with me, uh, my parents owned a restaurant growing up, and so cooking is one of my hobbies. I enjoy cooking. I enjoy making good food. And so chili is one of my better, uh, I'm, a, I'm a Midwest boy. It gets cold in, it gets cold in, the, in the winter. And so chili. So I made my chili, but I kind of have a secret ingredient in my chili. And I, I made one batch with my secret ingredient, and I made one batch without. And so I'm going to have you both taste each one, and you can tell me if you can taste the difference and if which one is better. So I'm going to let you both take turns. Uh, you know, there's a spoon, separate spoon. COVID, distancing, everybody's using their own spoon. So that's the first one. Roselle. It's not too hot, I hope, as in temperature. Kitty. So that's chili one. She says, mmm. So even my, even my like, not as good one is still pretty good. Uh, so what do we think? How Chili. Pretty fresh. Fresh. It's good. You, it's good. You, you kind of, you feel. Bland. It's, I'm so glad you said that. I picked the right. Okay, you guys can go ahead and put your spoons back in bland, fresh, but good chili. Now, here is secret ingredient chili. Same exact chili, one difference. Go ahead and tell me if you can taste the difference and if there's one is better than the other. She just made a different face. <laughs> they both did the mm, mm-hmm. 
That's bursting. Ooh, that's a great descriptive word. Roselle, bland still? No, it's very good. It's very good. Can you taste the difference? Oh, absolutely. If I were to offer you a full bowl of either of those, which would you choose? I would choose this. You would choose that because of the secret ingredient. Mm -hmm. Secret ingredient. Secret ingredient. So an ingredient, what I hear you saying is the ingredients, although that's very similar, can really matter. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. All right, let's shout out Roselle and Kitty one last time. You ladies were amazing. Yay. Now my mouth is watering. So what's interesting about these, and, and they, they've said as much, these two chilies, they look the same. They smell the same. They're so similar, uh, but they taste different. Why? Because there's one ingredient that is the difference maker in these two chilies. It's a secret ingredient. Now, I know you want to, oh, what is it? I'm not going to tell you. I know. Maybe if you stay for the end of the service. No, if you stay to the end of the series. No, I'm just not going to tell you. Uh, but like this secret ingredient, one ingredient made all the difference in the world in this chili. And I believe this ingredient that we're going to talk about for the next four weeks will make all the difference in the world of you actually experiencing what God has for you, that good life, becoming who he made you to be, and actually bringing hope and having joy and peace in the middle of kind of the craziness that we call the world. And it's definitely the secret ingredient for the church to be the hope of the world. Now, I'll tell you this. This secret ingredient is needed. It's required for a couple of things. First of all, it is required. If you want to learn, if you want to grow, if you want to develop, you have to have this in your life. It is also required if you want to see God move in your life. So here's my disclaimer at the beginning of a four-week series. If you want to be a part of a community that does it better than our culture or than our society and the brokenness we see around us in this hopeless world is operating, the way we disagree, the way we treat people, uh, the way we, what we value as important versus not important, then this, this secret ingredient might be of interest to you. But if you don't want to learn, if you don't want to grow, if you don't want to get better, if you don't want God to move in your life, this will not interest you at all. If you're not interested in a better way to go about relationships, if you're not interested in a better way to treat people or to be the type of church that hell could not stand against and that doesn't have the ability to be the hope of the world, if you don't want to be a part of that, then this won't interest you. But if any of that does interest you, then I believe this series is for you. And I really believe in all seriousness that this is something that will really, really help us in this current time and climate that we live in. And so I'm going to ask you now, you don't, I'm not going to tell you what the secret ingredient is in the chili today, but I'm going to ask you online, what do you think we're going to talk about? What do you think the secret ingredient is that doesn't get talked about, but is required for those things? Go ahead and throw it in on the chat. If you haven't already joined the chat, it's really easy. Jump in. I can't see it right now, but I'm going to guess you guys are giving some amazing guesses some unbelievable guesses. And I don't know if any of you got it, so I'll tell you what it is. The secret ingredient that we're going to talk about for the next four weeks is humility. Humility. Now, I realize from the very beginning there is an obvious conundrum facing the preacher and the listeners of a series about humility. Because the question is, does the speaker, does the pastor think that he or she has attained this virtue? If so, he most certainly has not. But then if not, why in the world would he be teaching on such a topic? Yet, what's interesting is strangely, this dilemma does not seem to apply with any other virtue, faith or grace or anything like that. But the minute somebody starts to tell you about humility, unless I tell you I have none, you may not want to listen. But if I have none, why would you want to listen? So it's kind of a dilemma. So we're going to take this journey together. And you can know from the start that whoever preaches this is still just a student. And we are all learning and growing together. Cool? Cool. Let me pray real quick. 
and then we will get started. God, I thank you for your word and what you want to say to us. Help us to hear from heaven of what you would say to us. And God, I pray that this would permeate into the depths of our heart, our soul, and it would affect every area of our life. In Jesus' name, amen. Here's what I would say about humility, that it is not possible. It is not possible for us to become who God created us to be if we do not embrace humility. It is not possible, and this is the journey we're gonna take for four weeks, that you actually can't follow Jesus well, you can't be who he made you to be, you can't experience all that he has for you if you do not embrace humility. And so before we go into this, let me talk a little bit about what the world was like in Jesus's day. As Pastor Chris said last weekend, and we do almost every weekend here, I wanna talk about there and then, say there and then. There and then. There and then, then, Jesus's world was very different than the world that we grew up in. See, there was a time and a place where humility has not always been a beautiful virtue. In fact, in the time of Jesus, humility was such a derogatory term. It was a term for servants. It was a, a term used for ill-informed people. It usually uh, notated the, the morally suspect. There was, there was nothing in Jesus's world or culture that valued humility whatsoever. Um, the most prized virtue in the ancient Greek culture that Jesus came from was this Greek word called, uh, uh, I'm gonna make sure I say it right, philotomia, uh, uh, philotomia. And it's literally the love of honor. See, the world that Jesus grew up in is very different than ours. It was all about what, what historians would call an honor-shame society. The, uh, the utmost goal, especially of any man, because uh, unfortunately in those times, women and children just couldn't get honor, was to pursue honor. Not wealth, not comfort, not any of those things, but it was honor was of the most importance. And so shame and humility were the opposite of honor. Therefore, they were to be avoided at all costs. And so much of the world revolved around ensuring that you and your family or definitely your sons received public honor and avoided, what do you think you avoided? Public shame. I want to pursue honor. I want to avoid shame. And so the most important thing to a father in the ancient world was not his children's happiness, wasn't even that his children make money. Honestly, it wasn't even that they lived this moral life. Uh, it was It was only that they would bring honor to the family and avoid public shame or public humiliation. Just knowing that alone will help you read some of the stories and parables Jesus taught very differently. And so anybody in that culture, especially the males, because they were the only ones that could really get honor, would pursue respect and would pursue praise throughout their entire life. And their greatest fear was not homelessness, was not poverty, but it would be publicly being shamed. Now, some of those things would be a part of shaming. But it was all about honor, shame, honor, shame. And if you go to the East, even to these days, it's still very much this way. I've been to China several times, and it's still very much, they call it face or having honorable, you would never shame your father or your family name. This still lives on in the East, and it's what's called an honor, shame culture. But we have a hard time with this because we don't live in an honor, shame society. We live, our key motivations are very different. You could kind of make the case of a few different things that ours are more good versus evil, Uh, definitely now pleasure versus suffering or prosperity versus poverty. And so for us, it's very different than it was in Jesus's day. And so in Jesus's day, humility was never attractive. It was never worth pursuing and it was never virtuous. Yet historians and non-Christian historians will, will, will tell you that a humility revolution broke out 2000 years ago in the Middle East by a nobody carpenter from a nowhere town called Nazareth. And he undeniably, his deity aside, started a humility revolution that has penetrated cultures, regions, and religions for the last 2,000 years. So 
We're gonna talk about humility, but first let's talk about what humility is and what it isn't, because I think sometimes when we talk about humble or humility, it's like, oh, I think I have this. And so let me just give you a couple of examples of what humility is not. First of all, humility is not in and of itself humiliation. That can be a part of it, but humility is not just being humili humiliated. Humility is not having low self-esteem. Um, humility is not um, thinking so terribly of yourself. Humility is not hiding your talents. Humility is not pretending you're not good at things. Humility is not being a doormat necessarily. That is not what the essence of humility is. At the core essence of what humility really is, and, and we're going to work on how this can look throughout the next few weeks, but the, the definition basically of humility is, is simply the posture of lowering yourself. The posture of lowering yourself. Now, this can look a lot of different ways. Sometimes other people will lower you or try to lower you, but Jesus taught, and the Bible invites us to either, rather than a world lower us and push us down, rather we would offer that in a culture that everybody else is trying to raise themselves. And so what does it look like to lower yourself? Well, it can look a lot of different ways. One of the weeks we're going to talk about the fact that it's the noble choice to forgo your status, to deploy your resources, and use whatever influence you have for the good of others above yourself. Uh, another way to say it would be uh, the willingness to hold power, but in service of others, not for yourself. Humility can always simply just look like a willingness to be the learner versus the expert or the teacher. Humility is actually required, and we're going to talk about this, to learn or grow at all. Sometimes humility is just being the listener versus being the talker and being heard. So what does it look like to lower yourself? It is to elevate others and lower yourself, and that can look so many different ways. I found all kinds of great quotes on humility. I just want to share a couple with you. Um, this one, I, I, I wasn't even looking. I just, it just popped up on my social media feed, and it, it said, it's the humble, man, uh, the humble man that makes room for progress, but the proud man believes he's already there. Isn't that so true? Humility says there's more, more to learn, more to grow, more to be had. But pride says, I've arrived. I'm the man. I'm the woman. I got it. I've been there. And unfortunately, one of those two people is going to learn and grow a lot more than the other. There's a great theologian uh, back in the day whose name was G.K. Chesterton. And he was asked to write a, a, an article, actually, uh, by his, his community. He was so regarded and revered his community. And, and they, were, they were having issues. You're never going to believe this. Their culture, they were having divisive issues, and they couldn't agree. And the church wasn't even being all the hope of the world. And, and so they asked him, they said, would you write an article on what is wrong with the world? And so this was the entirety of his article. It says this, what is wrong with the world? Question mark, he says, I am. Sincerely, G.K. Testerton. That is a posture of humility. What he was saying is, my brokenness, my humanity is contributing to all of the problems. Rather than point, humility says, rather than it's all your fault and it's all them, and if they would just, and if she would just, and if he would just, humility says, how much of this is on me and what, what ability do I have to make this better by elevating others and possibly owning the part of it that I'm doing to contribute to the brokenness? When was the last time you saw a news article or a social media post or a politician or a leader say, hey, um, rather than finger point, we're going to look to take ownership of our side of it, and we're going to try to elevate others rather than elevate ourselves. <laughs> Some of you, we can't even imagine what I just said because it's so opposite of the world that we live in. Yet, I think it's something we all would acknowledge. It's so necessary. Humility asks the question, do I use my power and influence to free uh, uh, and my free will to push people up? or to push people down. There's a great story uh, about this. Uh, 
about Sir, his name is Sir Edmund Hillary. Sir Edmund Hillary uh, was a master climber. He's, uh, he was the one, one of the first to climb Mount Everest. And he was the champion. He was the first one to do it. He became very famous in the Mount Everest area. Everybody knew who Sir Edmund Hillary was. And he would constantly, uh, he was regularly there around there and just uh, enjoying just the Mount Everest region. Well, one day he was walking and he had just, uh, this was not too long after he had climbed Mount Everest. And there were these uh, kind of tourists taking pictures and trying to get the, the picture of Everest in the back. And, and he just saw them and he, he, he loved the beauty of nature. And so he wanted everybody to take it fully in. And so rather than come to them and say, do you know who I am? He just said, hey, actually, um, if you were to take your camera and turn it this way and hold it like this, you'll get a much better picture of you in the mountain in the back. And he walked off, never announcing himself, the greatest climber of all time, until it wasn't until later that they found out their friends were like, do you know who that was? And they couldn't believe it. That's what humility does. I said a minute ago, it's not possible it's just, it's just simply not possible to become who God created us to be if we do not embrace humility in our lives. I see this with a lot of us. We want to grow. We want God to move in our lives. We want to see more of his power, more of his spirit. We want to see more of what he has, more of the good life we just talked about. Yet, the question is, do we posture our hearts? Do we posture ourselves in a place where we are willing to let the, literally let Jesus, let the Holy Spirit say anything that he wants to say to us, even if it hurts a little bit, even if we don't want to hear it, even if we believe something different for 15, 20, 30, 40 years about relationships or the world. And so I just want to give us two, two thoughts as we kind of kick this off. And this week is just literally a launch pad. I, I, I promise, I believe you're going to want to come with us. If you've been being blessed and, and just enjoying our online uh, experience, perhaps share this with somebody that you think would also benefit with it this week. But I just want to give us two thoughts, two, what I would say, two truths, two principles about humility. And, and, and we basically have already hit both of these. The first one is just simply this. Without humility, growth is impossible. Without humility, growth is impossible. See, it takes humility to acknowledge I'm not the expert. It takes humility to realize somebody else might have something that I can learn because the truth is, and we'll all agree with this in theory, in, in, in a message that none of us are an expert at everything. None of us are an expert at everything, but, but how often do we feel like we are the expert or no one can teach me anything or I've been doing this longer or I've been knowing this longer, I've been reading more of this or this is what this is. But the truth for every single one of us is what we don't know and what we can't do far exceeds, far, out, far exceeds what we do know and what we can do. As great as we may be, in certain areas, what we don't know and what we can't do is so much more than what we do know and what we can do. And I wonder how many of us, pride or insecurity or arrogance or whatever is actually the thing that is keeping us in the same place with our marriage, with our spouse, the same reason we keep coming, butting heads with the things at work, or we keep making the same mistakes in our lives, or we keep having the same sin issues is because we are, 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 are literally unwilling to, to rethink or hear God say, hey, maybe there's a different or a better way to do it. One person said, a little humility makes a whole lot of sense. Think about how much sense humility makes. Imagine if we all woke up every day and say, I'm going to walk in humility today. Because even if some of you are, are brilliant, some of you, you, are, you have PhDs, you're doctors, you've ran a, your business for 30 or 40 years, it went so much better than you thought it could have. Uh, your marriage, you might have like the marital bliss everybody wishes they had. But here's what we learn if, if we really have a, a lifestyle of humility is that expertise in one area actually counts very little for another area, 
right? Just because you may know a whole lot about mechanics doesn't mean you're any good at cooking. Well, I make some pretty good chili. Absolutely. I don't know nothing about cars. But I would be a fool to think because I am really good at making chili, even my bland chili is above average, I would dare say. You don't want to drop your car off at my house. I, if you want me to teach you soccer, you got the wrong guy. Just because I can do one thing doesn't mean I'm an expert, but how often do we continue to go through life, we have some successes, we have some wins, and we think, because I maybe have this, that actually trickles its way into our lives, and we go, I'm actually good at everything. There's a term for this, and it's really hard to say, but it's, uh, I'm gonna make sure, again, I wanna get this right. It's competency extrapolation. Type that in if you want to. Competency extrapolation, it's this idea that fooling yourself to think that because you're brilliant in one area, it automatically transfers into all these other areas. And it leads to listening to other people and, 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 and not listening and not learning. It's this idea that I'm, I'm genius. In fact, there's a great story for this. Um, there's a, it's a little allegory of uh, there's four men on an airplane and uh, there's a pilot. There is a great thinker, a master thinker of his day, a pastor and like a hiker, or a backpacker, and uh, they're flying to the destination, and the pilot comes and says, well, I got bad news and, and some okay news, and the, the bad news is the plane is going down. There's nothing I can do. I'm an expert in this. The good news is we have three parachutes, so three of us are probably going to make it, and so um, the pilot says, the other bad news is my plane, my parachute, so I'm going to take my parachute. That leaves two left, and so uh, the great thinker, thinking very highly of himself that he is a gift to the, the society and, and the world is better off with him, he says, well, I am one of the greatest uh, thinkers there are in the world. I'm one of the smartest men on the planet. The world will be better if I stay in it. And so he grabs a parachute and he jumps out. And now there's just a pastor and a backpacker and one parachute. The pastor looks at the backpacker and he goes, you know what? You look like you have a lot of life ahead of you. I'm good. My soul is good. I know where I'm going. Why don't you take the backpack and I, I, I'm, you know, I'm ready to meet Jesus. And the backpacker says, well, I really appreciate that. But the great thinker actually grabbed my backpack so we both get parachutes. <laughs> a little humility would go a long ways in our work environment, in our homes. See, here's what's true about humility. Humility generates new knowledge. Humility generates new abilities. Humility generates new opportunities, and here's why. It's the idea that I believe there's more out there to be discovered, to be learned, to be known. I can become a better version of myself than I am right now, and so I want to learn, and I want to grow, and I want to, I want to do whatever I can. I want to get as much input from God, from his scripture, from people. I want to be able to do that. See, it's the proud person who goes to church or goes to a conference and goes away with far less than a humble person. A humble person will take pages of notes and go, how can I get this and how can I learn this? And the proud person will go, yeah, I've heard that. I already know that. If you actually go back and look into it historically, it's humility, not pride, that generated science. It was this idea early on, after the, soon after the Greek era, that, that they, decide, they discovered that if we would posture ourselves as learners, we could discover how the world works and how everything kind of works together. And, and that's what generated science. Humility is what generated business, that maybe there's not just one way to run a business, or, or maybe we don't have to always do it the way it's always been done. It's been humility that has advanced us in our culture. In fact, there was an interesting study. A Harvard business professor was, was fascinated with this, and so he tracked, um, he was a Harvard business professor, he tracked the success of 115 of his students. And, and he uh, wanted to find out where they were later in life. And 
he found out that the, the, the student that was actually doing the best years later was probably about his most average student. It actually dumbfounded him. He thought, I had some brilliant minds in Harvard Business. They were, they were definitely going places. How did this kid surpass all of them? And, and they asked him, they interviewed him, and he says this. Uh, his name, the, the student's name was Marcel, and he said, well, here's what Marcel did. He said, confronting his mistakes... Marcel minimized the arrogant attitudes that often accompany success. Think about that for a second. How many times has success been the reason we stopped learning because we assumed we knew it all? He said, Marcel minimized arrogant attitudes that accompany success. With a relatively humble view of himself, he watched more closely and listened more carefully than most others do. He never stopped learning. What a great picture of this of this principle we're saying is that the, that the humble place is the place of growth. Now, I'm sure that you have all, whether it's with children or adults or bosses or coworkers or employees or employers, we've all tried to convince somebody that, that they could do better, that they could be better. And have you ever tried to do that with somebody who's just convinced they are right and you are wrong? And it is literally like talking to a wall, right? Why is that? That person unknowingly has said, I'm not interested in getting any better. I'm not interested in growing. And, and what, what worries me as a pastor is, again, we have this culture that has said, it's actually more about being right and defending your position. And can you find a loophole and an angle to show them? What if we were the group that did it different? Instead of find a way that I could still be right, we postured ourselves with humility and actually said two of the most powerful foreign words you hear anymore, which are, my bad. I'm sorry. It was my fault. I could have handled that. I could have done that better. I could have asked for better input. Will you forgive me? I'm trying to do better. My gosh, what if the news cycle for 24 hours was just a bunch of people taking ownership, saying, our bad, we want to do better. You're not all wrong. We're not all right. You're not all bad. We're not all good. And we just want to get it right for everybody. I think the world would take notice. And that's what the church is supposed to be. Criticism. I love this quote. Criticism for the wise person is like your best friend. Think about that. Criticism can be one of your best friends. Sometimes it comes from a confrontation at work or some scrutiny that finds you out or um, some criticism that can lead to your growth. Why? Because even untrue criticism can teach you about your communication, even if your heart is good. And true criticism can fast track your growth. This is one of the things that, that I don't claim to be a humble person, but I will tell you that I have made a lifestyle of getting feedback. Why? Because I don't want to ever be the expert. I always want to be the learner because if I get better, I believe everybody in my world and that influence gets better. And I owe it to the people I lead and I love and I influence the city, the church, the family I have. I don't want it to be stagnant. I want it to get better. John Maxwell, the leadership guru, says he basically says there's three different types of attitudes. There's three types of attitudes, and we all possess one of these. And so a possible kind of self-evaluation with this is this. That the three are, the first one is arrogant. Three attitudes. Number one is arrogant. Two is naive. And three is teachable. Three attitudes that all of us fit into one of these. We're either arrogant, we're naive, and we're teachable. Let me, let me explain what he means. He says, Arrogant people think they don't need to learn anything from anybody. I got it. You couldn't possibly teach me. I, I don't need to learn. The naive person 
believe that they can that only one person can teach them everything or what they need to know. I can't learn. I'm so good. I can only learn from the expert. I, 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 need, I need to sit under Bill Gates. That's it. If I don't sit under Bill Gates, if I don't sit under, you fill in the blank, like I can't learn anything. These fools can't teach me nothing. That's a naive person. Arrogant, can't learn anything from anybody. Naive is always looking for the expert in the room. But the teachable person believes they can learn from everyone and everything that is around them, even if it's a little bit. I believe I believe I can learn from anybody. I can, and if you're looking to learn, you're looking to grow, if we would posture ourselves to humble ourselves, we have the ability to become who God made us to be. But without embracing humility, we'll never experience that. And I believe that we will never be able to experience all that God has for us. The people who make the greatest impact in the world are those who are teachable. My question is this, which are you? Which are you? Humble? Naive? Arrogant. And if you don't know, ask your best friends and your spouse, and they'll help you answer that question. <laughs> Again, the truth is, it's just, it's not possible. It's not possible to become who God created us to be if we don't embrace humility. And I don't know where else we're going to hear this. And so first I said, my two thoughts is number one, it, without humility, growth is impossible. Some of us, we want to grow. We want our marriage to get better. We want our business to get better. We want to do better. We want to make better decisions. But nobody can tell you nothing. And until that changes, growth won't happen. How much is pride or arrogance or fear keeping you from becoming and, and literally becoming who you want to be, but literally God answering the prayers? Some of us are like, God, help me to get better. And he sends all these ways and all these teachers. You're like, nope, 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 nope. Not that, not him, not them. Definitely not that, not those people. They are... And God's saying, I keep continuing to answer your prayer, but because you have a posture of pride or arrogance or fear, you won't take any of my wisdom. My second thought is this. Not only without humility can, is growth impossible, but this matters too. Number two, without humility, the church is hopeless. The church that Jesus talked about, that Paul and Peter started in Acts, is meant to be the hope of the world that shows the world in all cultures, all climates, all societies, all political uh, spheres, that we can have hope and there's something bigger than what we have. In fact, James, chapter four, James, the brother of Jesus, in his, in, 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 in his letter, in the book of James, this is what he says about pride and humility in James chapter four, verse six. He says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble. How many of us, we want to walk in grace. We want to experience God's grace. We, it's his grace, his love that leads us to change. Yet when we're proud and, 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 and this opposing the proud is literally, there's no room for God to move. Church, we are supposed to be the light, be the hope of the world. We cannot be that if we do not embrace ourselves, embrace humility and posture ourselves, posture our hearts to say, God, where have I gotten it wrong? Where can I do better? Where can I love better? How can I be a part of the healing? How can I not subscribe to hate and fear that's all around us, but hope and love and experience those fruits that we talked about in the last series? We are the church. We as believers, the church isn't an organization. It's not a building. It's a group of people. It's Jesus' followers. We are supposed to be the examples in life, in love, and in leadership. We are supposed to be the examples in love. What is the essence of love? Putting others before yourself. It requires humility. It's the simplest thing, but humility requires me to put you above me. If I'm going to love, I have to have humility. This would solve a lot of our problems. But how many times do we demand to be first? Do we demand to have it our way? That things have to go the way they have to go. And if it's not, I don't know what to do. That's the opposite of humility. Man, when was the last time your children or your spouse or your 
business partner heard you say, I'm sorry, my bad. As parents, humility would lead to gentleness, patience, not getting so frustrated with our kids. We're supposed to be the example in love. You can't have love if we don't humble ourselves because love requires me to put you before me. And Jesus told his disciples, the world's going to know you're my disciples. They're going to know you're the church. Not because you're always right. Not because you articulate well, but because of the love that comes out of you. Humility. It's the secret ingredient to love. Not always having to have it my way. To lead. We're supposed to be the examples in leading. Man, what would happen to the way we, to our, the way we treat clients, our employees, the way G, the, if we did that the way Jesus taught and teaches people to be treated versus us trying to squeeze every last penny and angle everything? And, 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 and what if we tried to do right by the customers versus take advantage of our customers? What if we did, uh, uh, rather than like, like, just how can I find a loophole and get everything out of you? Go, I want to do right by you. Uh, rather than get the last penny, I want to make sure that, that you are elevated for me. We, we could, if we embodied humility, we could lead our families, our businesses. Our, we could even lead up so much better. Jesus redefined greatness in a shame, honor culture in Mark chapter 10, 43, when he said this, whoever wants to become great among you must intentionally lower yourself and become a servant. If you would have been in the audience that day, you would have thought this guy is crazy. He doesn't get it. He's asking us to do the opposite of what everything else is saying. And that's exactly what he did. And he started a revolution. Whoever wants to become great among you, serve. Imagine embracing humility so you can serve your spouse. Serve your kids. Serve your employees. Serve your boss. Serve your clients and your customers. Well, yeah, but pastor, we're supposed to lead, right? But Jesus said to lead is to serve. And it wasn't just Jesus' teaching. We see this in the Old Testament as well. But it was his crucifixion that changed everything because Jesus was the perfect ultimate example. I love that everything always comes back to Jesus. In the Roman, in the Greek Roman world, crucifixion was the lowest place. It was the ultimate punishment. It was the ultimate shame. Only the worst of the worst ever were, were, were penalized and crucified and brutally done that publicly in front of everybody. And it was Jesus who said, I'm going to choose to go this way so that I can elevate anybody who would ever put their faith in me. The cross of Jesus posed a major problem to the first Christians because it actually caused them to ask, is Jesus not as great as we thought? But what they soon learned is it wasn't that Jesus wasn't as great as they thought, but they had to mean what redefining greatness really was. That to be great now was to elevate others. If the greatest man that we have ever known sacrificed his life on a cross willingly, then greatness must be found in sacrifice, servitude, and elevating others, in holding power in service of others. It was Paul who wrote the first text in human history that connected humility with greatness, and he did it in the Bible in the book of Philippians chapter 2. And he says this, he says this about greatness, connecting it to humility. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but rather in humility, value others above yourself. Verse four says, looking not just to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. And then in verse five, he says, now in your relationships with each other, 
have the same mindset of Jesus. Here's what Paul is saying. Here's how to be great. Here's how to grow. Here's how to be the church. Here's how to be the hope of the world. Here's how to experience all that God has for you. You have to have the same posture, the same mindset, the same heart of Jesus, who was the greatest, created all, had the answer. Yet, here's what Paul says. Who, being in the very nature of God, didn't consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. He didn't use his status to his advantage, but rather he intentionally lowered himself. Watch, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. It is the ultimate humiliation in the world Jesus lived in. He created everything, yet made himself a man, humbled himself. And Paul says, if you want to grow, if you want the secret ingredient to love and joy and peace and good marriage and all the things that we want, you have to have the same mindset of Jesus who didn't use his status, use his resources, use his power, use his I know everything to his own advantage, yet he only served and raised people up, sacrificed his life so that if you would be willing to follow him on that path, you would experience the life that he died for. See, humility is the secret ingredient to life, love, and leadership. Our world, especially this Western culture, has massively and profoundly been shaped by the cross of Jesus. And so I'll say one last time, it is just not possible for us to become as Jesus followers, who God created us to be, if we do not embrace humility. Here's what's true about humility. Humility enhances whatever is ordinary, and it makes what's great even greater. Without growth, or without humility, growth is impossible. And without humility, the church is hopeless. Where do we need to invite humility into our heart? When was the last time we postured ourselves and said, God, I humble myself. Help me to learn. Help me to grow. Help me to be who you want me to be. I want to be a part of the hope of the world. I don't want to stay stuck where I'm at. I don't want to be naive. I don't want to be arrogant. If you were here last weekend, Pastor Chris talked about two things, and it starts with, at the end, he talked about confession and repentance. And they're both very powerful biblical principles. And confession is literally just ownership. It's verbal ownership that I have had arrogance. I've had fear. I've had pride. I have been stuck. God, will you forgive me? I'm going to humble myself. Even to ask for forgiveness and acknowledge I need something is a posture of humility. And then the repentance is turning towards something better. And so where do you need humility? Are you, are you stuck? Maybe humility is the ingredient you've been missing. Are you, are, you not fi- are you finding yourself doing life the way the world does? You're like, I don't know what this whole church thing is. If we're going to be the church that God wants us to be, we have to embrace humility. Maybe you've never even said yes to a relationship with Jesus. Well, guess what? He invites all of us to follow him. The reason he humbled himself is so he could elevate you, heal your pain, take away the shame of your sin so you could be in right standing with God. And if you will place your life and your faith in his hands, the Bible says you will be saved and he will put that spirit in you. You will get to experience what he meant for you on this side of eternity. And if you need that, you've never prayed for that, we have a team even just online that would love to pray with you. You can just click on the banner that says, I want to give my life to Jesus. And it would be our honor to introduce you and pray, uh, pray with you as you accept Jesus in your life. But for the rest of us, for the next three weeks, where would humility do me a lot of good in my life? And are we willing to take it and embrace it with where we're at? I'd love to pray for us. God, I pray that we would embrace the secret ingredient. We don't want to be like bland chili. 
We don't want to be a hopeless church. We don't want to be a stuck person that doesn't grow, doesn't change, and we're more interested in being right. We're more interested in yelling or finding loopholes. But God, I pray that we would embrace humility and that we would be the hope of the world and we would become who you made us to be. God, I specifically pray for anybody who's maybe never heard Jesus talked about like this, that he lowered himself to elevate us, that is saying yes to you for the first time. Would you fill them with your spirit? Would you heal them? Would you forgive them of their sins? Would they experience the freedom and the power that comes with surrendering to you? And God, for the rest of us, may we posture ourselves this week in a posture in our heart of humility saying, God, here I am. Teach me, shape me, mold me, use me how you want me to be. I apologize for my arrogance, for my pride, for, for getting sucked into the world's way of doing things. I want to do it the way you have for me. In Jesus' name, amen.